Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Bridget, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis in international affairs. And today we are going to try and tackle some parts of CETA, <laughs> absolutely not everything. In its largest bilateral initiative since NAFTA, Canada recently concluded the Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement, known as CETA, with the European Union after its approval in the European Parliament. After years of negotiating and selling the deal to Canadians, Canada and the EU now embark on a new chapter of a long history of economic cooperation. Minister of International Trade Francois-Philippe Champagne said that CETA is a deal for the people and that trade is a good thing for the world. Prime Minister Trudeau echoed these sentiments, saying that trade leads to good middle-class jobs. That said, not all are convinced of CETA's benefits. In the midst of an increasing distrust of trade agreements, uh, critics have cautioned against this agreement, arguing that it does little for everyday businesses and consumers, giving far-reaching influence to multinational corporations and some problematic investor protections. So protests have erupted both across Europe and in Canada in response to CETA, with people worried about the security of jobs, the environment, and other impacts on consumer goods. So are these worries well-founded? And what impact will this trade deal have on Canada? These are some of the questions that we hope to kind of tease out today. Here to help us make sense of CETA and the impacts of international trade agreements is our guest, Stuart True. Stuart True is a senior editor of The Monitor, a bi-monthly magazine of progressive research and opinion from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, and a researcher with the Centre's Trade and Investment Research Project. He is the co-editor with Scott Sinclair, of the Trans-Pacific Partnership in Canada, A Citizen's Guide, and an author of the recent report from NAFTA to CETA, Corporate Lobbying Through the Back Door. Welcome to Policy Talks. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So without going uh, into too much detail about, you know, just the technical aspects of CETA, the finer details, perhaps you could give us your perspective on some of the highlights of the deal. So maybe, you know, the key clauses, things that our listeners should be aware of, and especially the chapters that have garnered the most criticism. Okay, um, I can do that. Uh, so yeah, so CETA, obviously, as you guys said, it's a, a NAFTA-type agreement. It's the largest free trade deal that Canada has attempted to, or has, I, I suppose, now successfully negotiated with another country. Um, but like NAFTA, and like other free trade agreements since then, it's a lot more than that, right? And so when, when you look at uh, the concerns people have with CETA in Europe and in Canada, as you, as you mentioned, um, they have to do with those parts of the deal that aren't really about trade, right? We're not anti-trade. We just look at this as a much bigger deal than that. And so there are concerns, uh, especially you mentioned them with the investment chapter, for example. That was one of the big ones, especially big, uh, big deal in Europe where it almost scuppered the deal, right? So this is a chapter in CETA, uh, as there is in NAFTA, only it's a bit, a bit expanded in CETA, that allows uh, investors, in this case Canadian investors, to or European investors, to sue governments um, outside the courts. So this is a, a private arbitration system only for corporations when they feel that uh, a, a government decision, whether it's a regulation, a health and safety regulation, a decision to cancel a, you know, a mining. 
uh, project, for example, if that if they feel that undermines their investment, contrary to the agreement, then they can sue. So that was that was a big problem for a lot of people in Europe. Um, there were uh, issues in Canada related to the CETA's intellectual property rights chapter. Uh, I mean, this was um, essentially a, a list of requests from Europe to Canada to change our copyright and patent law, which we simply said, you know, yes to. Uh, it's going to have enormous costs in Canada in terms of uh, prescription drugs, right? So estimates in the $850 million a year range is that's going to be the additional cost once CETA comes into, comes into force. Um, and at the local level, there were concerns with CETA's procurement chapter. So um, this is, you know, procurement, it would be, you know, money that municipal governments, uh, universities, um, hospitals, they spend on goods and services in a year, right? So no longer will they have the ability to attach local uh, benefits to that spending, you know, like, well, we're get, we'll give the contract to you as long as you hire a certain number of you know, people from, from this community, or as long as, you know, you, you source a portion of your goods and services from within the, the province or within Canada. That kind of stuff becomes illegal under CETA. So you can see how it, more than a trade deal, it actually deals a lot with, um, you know, the government of Canada's regulatory and policy capacity, and it, it goes down to the local level too. So the city of Ottawa's uh, capacity to govern and also the, the university's capacity as well. I think one thing when I was going through the citizen's guide that was really concerning was the centralized or the individual arbitration courts rather and the issue that came up a lot in NAFTA where Canada was sued the most than any other country has ever I think it was in the history or it's the most sued country That's right. for trade most dispute. sued developed country exactly yeah. and it's weird to me that they didn't are there any safeguards or is there anything better about this arbitration system in terms of looking at what happened in NAFTA and trying to protect Canada to have some recourse in these decisions there there are um it's funny because there are but not not for anything Canada did you know what I mean like right. Canada was when they started the CETA negotiations very gung-ho on having as strong as possible an investment protection chapter like they like they do in NAFTA um, and this was, uh, I think, because of the kinds of investments Canada has a lot of in Europe, which is in the resource sector, mining, this kind of thing. Gold, there's a big gold mine a Canadian company wants to build in, in Romania, right? So these are the kinds of investments uh, that would be protected under a, a very strong investment protection in case those projects were to be cancelled. What happened, though, is because this huge backlash in Europe among progressive organizations to these protections, which aren't available to regular people, you know, people don't have that kind of power under these trade deals to challenge government decisions or to hold corporations to account. Um, you had this process where Canada, uh, it would no longer be possible to sign the deal unless Canada were to kind of step back a bit and incorporate some of these reforms. Um, one of those, like you mentioned, was this new, it, it will no longer be ad hoc arbitration panels. There will be an investment, well, they're calling it an investment court system, uh, which is a bit disingenuous because it's not really a court, right? It's still, an, it's still an extra legal process. It just means that the people who will be deciding these cases are no longer uh, brought on on an, on an ad hoc basis. There will be a roster of arbitrators who decide these things. Now that is, uh, according to reform reformers of the investment uh, investor to state dispute settlement process, that is a, a step up. Um, it will add 
some procedural fairness to the process. But at the same time, most of the rules that will be decided by these panels are exactly the same. They're very, uh, very favorable to corporations, uh, very suspicious of government regulations. Um, and according to studies we've, we've been part of, um, a lot of the cases we've seen against Canada, because you're right, we have been sued more times than Mexico under NAFTA, and 30% of the time those are against uh, environmental policies that, let's remember, affect foreign and Canadian investors in exactly the same way. Those cases will not be blocked by these reforms in CETA. In fact, we expect CETA to increase the number of cases like that you see in both Europe and Canada. So, you know, yes, some procedural improvements in this uh, investment court system. For example, um, you know, they're going to be, these people will have a retainer. Not all of their salary will be based on uh, how many cases come their way, right, which actually serves as an incentive to take on more and more cases, exactly. serves as an incentive to rule favorably for the investors, so more investors bring cases, right? There will be some procedural improvements, but by and large, the rules are the same, and they're, they're weighted heavily in favor of corporations and uh, against, this, against governments. So I suppose our experience just with these kind of problematic uh, investor protection clauses in NAFTA kind of gives us a, perhaps a grim foreshadowing of what might be to come uh, in, in uh, CETA, but kind of moving on from the investor protections. Um, CETA aims to eliminate almost all tariff barriers to trade in goods, so that includes things like agricultural goods. Um, so this has proven contentious in Canada because some goods like dairy and poultry are controlled through supply management. So what exactly is at stake uh, for this sector, and how might CETA realistically impact these, these, these agricultural industries? Right. A agriculture is always important to Canada when they, when they sign trade deals. In fact, they're one of the biggest supporters, uh, the export sectors. You know, if you're looking at grains, you're looking at meats and pork. Uh, very, uh, they're usually the biggest boosters of these kinds of free trade deals because they can see they just want to be able to get into more markets, right, that might be closed to them. Um, that said, uh, and I will talk about dairy in a second, um, I think it's important to recognize that the barriers to trade right now with Europe are minuscule. I mean, we're talking in the 2% range for the average tariff, 2.5%. Um, CETA doesn't so much open a door, right, because trade is already quite healthy with Europe. We, they're the second most important trading partner for Canada. Um, again, I think it comes down to more of these other rules that we'll talk about probably through the course of the interview. But in terms of uh, dairy here in Canada, there was uh, a, a concession, a considerable concession in, in the sense that cheese uh, imports from Europe will double uh, once CETA comes into effect. So there's a quota and, um, a quota of European cheeses right now, which will be doubled, I think to about 34,000 tons, I think, is, is what will be allowed into Canada per year versus 17 right now. Um, European exporters are very excited about this. Uh, they see it as a kind of 4% market access gain in Canada. Now, on the Canadian side, dairy farmers are predicting this is going to hit them uh, to the tune of about $118 million a year. That's how much their uh, industry will be hit in the sense that that's how much milk will uh, less milk will be going towards the production of Canadian cheeses. This is just, I won't say, you know, these aren't our numbers. These are, I'm just repeating the numbers of the dairy <coughs> sector. Um, they are, this is, I think that is kind of chipping away at the supply managed sectors in Canada. Um, it always come up during trade negotiations, obviously. Supply management, uh, you know, we at the CCPA actually 
support supply management. A lo- there's a lot of uh, a lot of antipathy, a lot of opposition to it. I think in the media and from other uh, business groups. But uh, as far as we can see, I mean, it's a gr- it's a it's a fairly rigorous, uh, beneficial system. It keeps local, uh, rural communities where there's a dairy farming presence. It keeps them healthy, right? Farmers get a living wage from the extremely hard work they do. Like I couldn't be a dairy farmer. It's not <laughs> it's not easy work. Uh, You're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it gets them a living wage. We have a stable supply of high quality milk and cheese in Canada. Uh, you know. Cheese is getting much more interesting, you know, even within the supply managed sector. There's some great Canadian cheeses coming out again and again every year. Uh, and the prices, you know, we pay we pay a premium, a small premium at the grocery store for our milk. It's a little bit more expensive than the U.S., but it's going up in price year on year way slower than other food goods where they're, uh, you know, uh, vulnerable to market fluctuations in global prices, right? So, you know, it, it would we prefer to have, what would we have if we didn't have supply management? We might have a situation like in New Zealand where farmers are going into debt because the milk price can suddenly drop uh, when there's a glut, as there has been in the past few years, and farmers are put into desperation, right? So, uh, you know, believe it or not, other parts of the world look to Canada's supply management system as a a model, but anyway, that's that's a long pitch. It gets us a bit away from CETA because CETA did, thankfully, uh, keep most of the system intact. But it will have an effect on farmers to be compensated, uh, excuse me, by the federal government, which has said, uh, acknowledge they're going to get hit. They're going to be putting two hundred fifty million dollars into a a fund to improve the productivity of dairy uh, producers, and they put another hundred million into a fund that will help um, dairy farmers diversify the kinds of products they sell. Right. Uh, part of the innovation agenda, I guess, of this of this government to get interesting types of yogurt uh, onto the market. <laughs> um, kind of quickly, you know, before we get too much into the dairy, one final little point on that. I know that you had mentioned that, um, you know, the barriers to our dairy or poultry are still relatively low, even like pre-CETA. And is it possible, though, that given, you know, even further reduction some of these losses that might occur from, you know, the flooding of European cheese into Canada might be offset by a, a boost in Canadian exports to European countries? It's it, absolutely. It's possible in this sense because, I mean, doubling the cheese quota is still not going to, in that sense, flood the Canadian market with European cheeses. And so in terms of, you know, Canadian, uh, other Canadian agricultural goods entering the the European market, there are some uh, potential gains for things like seafood, where there were some higher tariffs, you know, in the twenty percent range on uh, range on on shrimp, for example, and um, potentially for for beef and pork. Now, Europe has said we will uh, increase your quota for for beef and pork products, but they're processing. Uh, they don't want to take in goods that have been processed, you know, using right. antibiotics or you know, washed in chlorine and that kind of thing, right? So, um, not that all of Canada's meat is is produced in that way. Um, but in that sense, Canada will need to produce certain things like pork products differently because a lot of them do contain antibiotics. So there, we will have to develop a new uh, market, in a sense, a new industry sector for exports to Europe. Um, in Europe, they don't expect the imports to be a huge impact on their market in terms of, of pork and, and beef. So again, we're not talking about huge gains from CETA, right, in the trade sense. 
Um, and when we when we look at some of these concessions we made in, in the policy area, right, we we question whether it's worth it, you know, for these modest gains in agricultural export sectors. Right. And that's a big criticism I've heard over and over again of free trade agreements in the idea of harmonization. And really what the criticism says is that harmonization is really just getting to the lowest common denominator every single time you go into a negotiation. And I guess jumping off of that, would you consider progressive trade clauses more substantive or symbolic in terms of their effects following the implication of the free trade agreement? And do you think that maybe we could, even though it's been largely accepted, move to integrate more progressive policies at this point? It's uh yeah, it's a, I'm having trouble seeing what parts of the agreement are progressive, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's let's talk about the word progressive means different things, I think, to different different people. Um, but from our perspective, from this kind of left, center-left perspective, I mean, if you're looking at the progressive parts of CETA, if, if we want to call them that, sustainable development chapter, you know, the integration of the environmental and labor chapters into the agreement versus as side agreements as in NAFTA, I mean, from what we've seen... Uh, from our assessments of them, I mean, they're they're largely uh, toothless, right? These these environmental measures in CETA, these labor protection measures, don't have the same kinds of enforcement. Uh, they're not as enforceable uh, as, say, the investment protections are in the CETA, right? So it's still a highly imbalanced deal where you get these strong enforceable protections for investors and you get these kind of aspirational... Uh, you know, in the case of the sustainable development chapter, it will be participatory. They're hoping to create a civil society dialogue uh, down the road that will monitor the effect of CETA on uh, on labor and the environment and that kind of thing. But, you know, um, these are really just window dressing in a sense, right? They're not going to affect the rules, the hard and fast rules in the agreement. And um, experience with other European deals where they incorporate these what you might call progressive uh, civil society dialogues is is not all that positive, right? They, yeah, they come together once a year. They talk about what they don't like about the deal, and then the deal continues, right? I mean, nothing happens. Um, so I think we really question uh, the government's branding, and really, that's what we think it is. It's a branding strategy of CETA. It was a necessity that it be a progressive deal for the European Parliament to pass it, um, and and with with the exception of a few changes we talked about to the investment chapter that make it somewhat uh, uh, maybe more permissive of certain types of regulations. There's not there's not a lot of progressive uh, stuff in the deal. I wonder if you might just kind of explain what exactly is causing these particular clauses to be weaker. Um, are we looking at, you know, uh, the results of opposition from, from business, from particular governments? Um, do you know if you know what might exactly have occasioned toothless clauses? It's, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, probably a number of things. When it comes down to it, uh, you know, it's about what are these trade deals for? Who are they for? Right? And what are they supposed to do? And you know, since NAFTA, even before, they were written by and for uh, multinational corporations, essentially. Right? So. Um, not just exporters, but large services companies who don't want to see, you know, overly complicated rules, or they don't want, you know, stricter regulations in one jurisdiction than another, and these kinds of things, right? So, the idea is you get government out of the way of overly regulating commerce and overly regulating trade, 
And you don't, you can't do that if you're at the same time putting all these strong environmental rules into these deals. Right? I mean, that's really not what the deals are about. And I think that's why we see this, uh, the difference between the enforceability. You know, for example, if you have a dispute related to the environment, you don't think that the European Union is, you know, uh, um, holding up its own environmental laws or it's weakening its laws to attract investment or, you know, it's uh, going against some treaty related to the protection of marine wildlife or something like that. You can file a complaint and in CETA, you know, your complaint will then move to another stage and then a final stage. And then if there's no resolution, you can go back to the beginning, right? I mean, this is what that looks like. Whereas if you're a company and you don't like that a government has put a stop to the mine you wanted to build, right, close to the main water supply for our community, right, um, you can take them to these kangaroo courts, right, this, this arbitration system outside of the normal court system, and you can actually get better treatment sometimes, and you might get under the... Um, uh, you know, you can, you can get granted compensation for not building the mine, essentially, uh, which is quite outrageous. Um, so you kind of spoke about the need to just really try to figure out who are these deals written for. And here you 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 alluded that it seems to be skewed, you know, to favor multinationals and, and the bigger corporations. Um, but also you touched on branding and and I suppose the Liberal government's attempt to portray this as progressive, as perhaps, you know, a tide that, that rises all boats. Um, so what are the opportunities here? What are the, perhaps the benefits for small, medium-sized enterprises? Um, are they likely to see many in comparison to, to their, you know, larger multinational counterparts? Mm-hmm. This is an interesting question, too. It was a, another aspect, I think, of the branding of CETA, that this one began with the um, Harper government. Uh, started to, at the end of the day, when they could see that, you know, people were starting to pay attention to the sea negotiations, it was being linked to, you know, Canada's lobbying against fuel quality standards in the European Union that would have kind of given, you know, made it harder to import tar sands. Anyway, this is all to say there was a need to rebrand CETA, and the Harper government chose small and medium-sized enterprises. They're going to be the big winners, right, from the, from the deal. Um, I don't think there's a lot of evidence that that's the case. I mean, small and medium-sized enterprises typically don't do as much trade as multinational companies. I think if you look at the stats that the OECD and I think Oxfam has done some stats on this too, like the bulk of international trade is done by a tiny percentage of very large companies. SMEs, when they do get involved, when they do do international uh, trade, it tends to be in areas where they're familiar uh, or where they're it's nearby, right? So if you think if most of us live within 100 kilometers of the U.S. border, then if they do international trade, it's going to be with the U.S. Um, as we said at the beginning, nothing in CETA really um, opens a ton of new doors for SMEs or multinational corporations, for that matter, in terms of trade. Um, I think what small companies probably need more than these trade deals is uh, they need encouragement, right? If they If they are going to be going overseas, they need to know that They've got someone helping them out, right? And I think there's a role for Global Affairs Canada to be providing that service, and they do provide those services. But, you know, if you really want to help them out, you could do it a bit more. You could get serious and bring them over when you go on these big missions with your uh, larger multinationals, which they do from time to time, right? So I think that would be an important service. Simply signing another 6,000-page 
agreement full of rules that no small business owner is going to have a chance to go through. I mean, how right. does that how does that help them get into the European market? I don't know. And I think with branding, we'll go into our break. Um, we'll catch you back with more free trade agreement talk in just a moment. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. Okay, so we're back from our break talking about CETA and the status of international trade. So before the break, we were talking a lot about government branding of CETA and having it seem more progressive than it was with CETA having a lot of roots in the conservative government trying to get this free trade agreement through. So when it comes to the public, is it, it's kind of fascinating in the sense that you almost feel now if you hadn't looked or delved into the policy that saying no to free trade now because of Trump's reaction to TPP is tantamount to saying no to a lot of what the center left tries to push through in terms of like this new globalized era where there's a free movement of people and there's a free movement of trade and everyone's more prosperous because of it. Could you touch on that a little bit in terms of public reactions and Yeah, it's a very it's a very interesting time uh with with Trump and his pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and um you know, it is you're right. You get the sense that when you say you're against CETA that somehow you're kind of offending uh the 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 foundations of liberal democracy, right? That you're somehow some heretic, right? But um um I think I think you're right. Yeah, it's uh you know, it does feel like these days, or at least um, I think as going back to branding, I mean, there is this uh, uh, an attempt to kind of paint people as who are who are critical of these trade deals as somehow, you know, opposed to liberal democracy, right? Like they're totally closed off. You know, free trade is about openness, like you said, free movement of people. And that if you don't like these deals, you're somehow kind of a nativist and, you know, you're anti-immigrant and you must like Trump and this kind of thing. And uh, and that does pose, I think, a, a conundrum for groups um, like like the CCPA and others who who want to talk about trade in this environment. Um, at the same time, you have uh, people like our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau saying quite frequently that globalization has left people behind. Right. So that's that's happening at the same time, and that's who he's speaking to is the European protesters. He's speaking to the anti-CETA people here and. Uh, the workers who have lost their jobs and who are, are having a hard time finding something stable in these kinds of th- uh, in this new environment, right? Slow growth, that kind of thing. Not as much um, investment going into new production in Canada or anywhere for that matter. A lot of corporate hoarding. These are kind of these feel like very unstable times, right? So, I think there is uh, an acknowledgement of that. Even in uh, if you look at the trade policy Trump put out um, last week, he even spells it out uh, at the top, that people feel like they've been left out from globalization. And I think um, <clears throat> I think that, uh, you know, 
to deal with that, right, to actually really deal with that, you can't simply go on signing more trade deals on the NAFTA model. You're going to have to at some point realize that a rebranding could actually come back and bite you because you're going to end up creating the same conditions that led to this kind of insecurity in the first place. If you look at CETA, it's especially true, right? I mean, some of the um, economic studies that have come out recently to show the impacts of CETA uh, on workers are it's going to depress wage growth. It's going to um, take more uh, income from workers in the long run and kind of move it into profits, which is what we've seen over the past 25 years, I think has been the main, uh, one of the most notable economic features of free trade era has been this kind of shift from, of income from the middle class upwards to, uh, to the profits of, of the richest people, right? So, you know, you can't, you're going to have to put your money where your mouth is, essentially. You can't say you want to do something and remain open and like give uh, opportunities to everyone and yet sign these deals which have the effect of actually sucking money straight up to the top into the 1%. Um, I suppose kind of drawing you know, directly off of those points and the fact that Trudeau almost appears to be kind of playing this sort of political ba uh, balancing act where he's trying to you know, push these trade deals, but at the same time, um, address the concerns of of uh, opponents and protesters and people who feel left out, you know, sometimes rightfully so, by these trade deals. Um, would you say that the Trudeau Liberals are effectively gambling on free trade and CETA, um, being able to, you know, occasion growth and really deliver um, on, on, on uh, you know, deliver actual growth and, and, and net benefits for the Canadian economy? Yeah, it is. It's interesting to think of it as a gamble um, because, you know, the returns cannot possibly be what, what would make it worth it. Um, you know, it, it is, like you said, this is a period of slow growth right now globally. Um, even if it weren't, even if this was a, a period of, you know, normal or pre-crisis levels of, of growth, uh, CETA would not have significantly boosted the Canadian economy. It would not have produced a ton of new opportunities for for business on either side of the Atlantic, but especially in this environment. I mean, if if Trudeau's gambling on this kind of paying off in time for I don't know what, you know, 10 years down the road, um, then yeah, I think we're going to be quite disappointed, right? Um, you look at who's coming out against these kinds of deals now. It's not simply, you know, not, not that this is not... Maybe a bad way to phrase it. It's Greenpeace for sure. It's uh, activists, progressive activists in the European Union. It's uh, it's it's uh, left and center left politicians. But it's also, you know, the Joseph Stieglitzes, the you know Thomas Piketty's. It's it's uh, economists are coming out and saying like, yeah, these deals are fine, but you know, you're not going to get a big boost from them. And they have all this other junk in them, right? That's actually going to harm you down the road from intellectual property rights that are too strict. Uh, to these uh, weird investment protections, to these kinds of restrictions on by Canadian policies. So, you know, there's, I think there's a, the awareness seems to be growing still, even though we've got this branding exercise going on with Trudeau saying, you know, this is a good thing and it's openness. I think you've got this, uh, it's, it's not enough, right? There's this still kind of growing feeling that, no, these deals aren't really going to help me at the end of the day. One thing that comes to mind, with these agreements going forward, is there any precedent for redrawing the lines with a, within agreements after a number of grievances, for example, in a certain sector come up? Because, for example, the Canadian mining sector abroad does not have the best reputation, thinking of Guatemala. And when you're talking about bringing 
these practices into Romania and other countries where there is a significant amount of economic depression still chronically felt and a lot of people trying to welcome these manufacturing jobs and saying it will lift up the middle class of a lot of Eastern European nations who are looking to either join the EU or who have already begun that process. Is there anything that, are there any mechanisms that would be able to look at grouped grievances and correct them and not scrap the whole deal? Not in the CETA, no. Like, um, there's really no recourse, right, for for abuses of, of mining companies in CETA. There's, you know, I suppose Canada could, if um, uh, if there were gross abuses, for example, of Canadian mining companies in Europe, um, uh, you know, th- there could be, uh, you could freeze, you could freeze the CETA agreement. There's a, there's a sister agreement or a brother agreement, whatever you want to call it, to the CETA called the Strategic Partnership Agreement that does contain a clause saying, you know, in the event of gross human rights abuses, you know, the, the CETA can be cancelled uh, while they negotiate. But no, there's really no, uh, like we were saying on the investment chapter, there's no recourse for communities in CETA. There's no recourse for individuals to uh, take companies um, to court for, for their actions, which is why groups are looking to other venues. They're looking to the UN or they're looking at setting up some kind of corporate impunity uh, tribunal, right, that where these things can be judged. They're looking at trying companies in other countries where they have some presence, you know, and, and so, yeah, but these trade deals don't offer uh, anything uh, in that sense. I suppose kind of bringing us back to a broader context, I think Trudeau's on record as stating that, you know, if if CETA doesn't deliver, then it might be one of the last trade deals of its kind. Um, would you agree with that? Are we at such a point where, you know, is CETA truly so important in determining the future of of, of multilateral trade in regard to free trade ag- uh, agreements? Uh, I think, I think it, there is a potential that it will be the last deal of its kind, um, and that has again a lot to do with Trump, right? I mean, Trump is. Uh, if we go back to the policy statement he put out last week. I mean, they are talking about rewriting the rules of global trade, right? Um, to make them America first, right? So everything's got to be America first. And so in this case, uh, the United States has pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, wants to pursue bilateral agreements with all the countries that were involved, including a renegotiation of NAFTA. Um, we're going to have to wait and see what the, the specifics are, but, um, you know, it will will it look like CETA? It's you know hard to tell. It's certainly um, you know if you look at other countries negotiating trade deals too. China's increasingly negotiating bilateral trade deals with other countries. With the TPP debt again, they're looking at ex- expanding or getting serious with this uh, regional co-op. Uh, was it regional cooperation? Anyway, the RCEP. Sorry, apologies. Too um, many acronyms. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but China definitely does trade deals differently. I mean, there is no labor agreement. Uh, in Chinese trade deal. There's no environment agreement in Chinese trade deal. So, you know, even where groups say, well, those were modest gains for the labor movement, environmental movement within North American style trade deals, that might be going, you know, a different direction as well. So I think it's it's partly, it could, it, it could be possible, right? But then, you know, we've got to think, well, Trump's not going to be around forever. All the forces in the U.S. actually want him to continue to sign deals like CETA, right? So he, he might end up stepping back. And then we're basically back on the same path we've been on for a while, right? Which, again, I think is not the right path we need to be on if we want to actually provide, uh, you know, um, 
shared shared prosperity right across across the globe now it is an interesting case study i guess if you will a little bit too live action for maybe everyone's taste you know but when you looked at the liberal government branding this they said oh we're going to bring in great middle class jobs and it's it's interesting to see because a lot of the times we think of especially in North America, middle class jobs coming in because you can essentially export all the lower skilled work or have people from lower wage countries come in and do that work. But Europe is, if anything, like has just as strict um, wage regulations, if not more strict wage regulations than Canada does. So can you speak on how exactly is that supposed to work? And in your opinion, would it work? You mean, would it... uh would the deal bring about middle class jobs or strengthen middle class jobs was the big touting point uh well um it's you know some of the studies that have come out including one from ccpa was done by jim stanford when he was at unifor um another one we come up with from john jacobs at the ccpa suggests that you know if you look at what CETA is likely to do the to the canadian economy on a macro level it's uh going to be uh, we're going to be more tended more towards um, you know the export of low value added goods. So basically, it uh, Canada's existing experience of free trade deals in this era has been to shrink the kind of manufacturing sector. It's at quite a low level right now. Um, it's it's uh, emphasizes exports of raw or barely processed goods, like gold, oil, this kind of thing, pulses, that kind of thing. So you know, there's not a lot of new Canadian jobs in that, right? Um, And if you look at the studies, again, going back to the one from Tufts University we talked about that showed that wage growth would be suppressed, um, which means that if CETA didn't exist, wages would actually go up faster than if it does exist, right? Which is really uh, puzzling to think about, right? That you can sign a trade deal that's supposed to give you a $12 billion boost to your GDP, and yet uh, average incomes are going to go up even slower than they already are. You know, um, the free trade era has not been good for middle class incomes, right? They're stagnant across the developed world. Uh, Meanwhile, as we were talking about, like uh, corporate profits keep going up, right? They're hoarding about, I think, $600 billion worth of of what uh, Mark Carney called dead money right now. This is money that could be reinvested in middle class jobs, but that isn't being invested in middle class jobs. And that's not... Uh, something that CETA can fix, right? That's going to take more hands-on government policy. That's going to take, uh, you know, more 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 directed stimulus. I would say expanding public services that creates good middle-class jobs, right? Childcare. We need childcare, and that creates a lot of good jobs as long as they're they're paid well enough. Um, so I would say, no, CETA's not the way to <laughs> to help the middle class. You help the middle class by actually uh, producing the jobs of tomorrow, which is in uh, public services, which is in renewable energy, uh, retrofitting, transportation, public transit, these kinds of things. And going off of that, would it seems like this is going to be a real problem for Indigenous communities who for the longest time have not had recourse or foreseeable recourse. And the fact that it can be even more convoluted, we're saying now, because you're not only discussing with the provincial and the Canadian governments, you're also having to discuss with these within, or not even having recourse with these courts, but within these arbitration courts, as well as the European Union. 
So is when you talked earlier about these communities going to the UN, it feels like there's already a giving up on social policy for Indigenous and First Nations communities throughout Canada. And yeah, I mean, yeah, um, the AFN, uh, the Assembly of First Nations, frequently points out that, um, you know, First Nations communities are simply, uh, they're not included in these trade negotiations, right. which is quite remarkable, right? And especially in this era of, of reconciliation, you would think if you're going to change the way we, we uh, relationship, Canada's relationship with First Nations, then uh, easy place to start would be to include uh, First Nations representatives in trade negotiations. They're, they're not. Um, I think you can see from the deal that their interests are not represented. There are modest uh, exclusions from investment treaties that Canada signs for uh, certain policies related to, to First Nations, but it, they are just overwhelmed by the, the corporate rights granted in these investment treaties and these three trade deals. There was um, a legal challenge out in British Columbia against the investment treaty with China on, on those grounds, stating that this is actually unconstitutional simply because it violates section, you know, the First Nations Section 35 rights. Um, and uh, we think it was a, a bad decision. The, the judge decided to defer uh, authority to the federal government in this case and not, and not rule uh, on it as being a constitutional violation. But these companies want to go into a community. If there's pushback, you know, if it's a pipeline company or, you know, just looking at the pipeline fights going on in Canada and the U.S., um, you know, these companies have, if they are, to the extent they're from a country with which you have a treaty, they have more rights than you as a citizen and, and even as uh, a member of one of Canada's First Nations or an Indigenous peoples in Canada, which is, uh, which is unconstitutional and wrong, frankly, right? So, um, uh, yeah, nothing in these deals uh, for, for, for First Nations in Canada. And, um, you know, to the extent that it shows uh, the priorities are in the wrong place, I think, um, I think that's true in so many ways, you know, when it comes to the federal government, uh, priorities have not been in the right place when it comes to First uh, First Nations. Um, I think these treaties, in a, in a bigger way, show that the government's priorities are not in the right place in terms of they don't give a big boost to our economy. They don't improve our economy. They don't improve jobs for the middle class. They don't improve wages for workers. You know, there's so many ways in which these trade deals show uh, bad priorities, I think. Uh, and that uh, First Nations is definitely a, a good example of one of those ways. Yeah. Well, I think that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you very much, Stuart, for joining us in the studio and giving us your perspective it's on CETA. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks. Nice to meet you. Yes, thank you very much. And thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at PolicyTalksPod for updates and related content. If you have any feedback, comments, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email or reach us on Facebook or Twitter. A quick thanks to our research team who put this episode together. Eugene So, Shetha Ali, Juhi Sohani, our technician, Megan Boisjoli, and our wonderful producer, Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Matt. And I'm Bridget. This is Policy Talks. Policy Talks.